welcome to Bio-Citizen Banter, a podcast dedicated to environmental philosophy featuring lively discussions between people active in the effort to bring biotic health and diversity to our communities and commonwealth. Hi, this is Ursa Heidinger, Director of Bio-Citizen New York. This week, California Executive Director Jesse Carmichael interviews filmmaker Samantha Bode, whose documentary, The Longest Draw, tells the story of the real impact of the L.A. aqueduct, the primary source of all of L.A.'s water. Hi, all. This is Jesse Carmichael, Executive Director of BioCitizen L.A. Welcome to our podcast series, BioCitizen Banter. I'll be your host today for a talk with someone I admire deeply, Samantha Bode. Samantha Bode is a filmmaker storyteller behind one of my favorite documentaries, The Longest Straw. This film tells the story of the real impact of the LA aqueduct, the primary source of all of LA's water. Director Samantha Bode and crew spend 70 days backpacking the 338 mile path of the Los Angeles aqueduct, including the Mono Extension. During their trek, they speak with historians, community leaders, and residents of Los Angeles, the Owens Valley, and Mono Basin to gain a deeper understanding of the effects of water importation on ecology, economy, and society, as well as the future of local water sources for Los Angeles. The Longest Straw is a film which draws a connection between the water that supports a city and that water's source. It's how Sam chooses to tell this story that is truly awe-inspiring. And it is the lengths to which she is willing to go that make her such a compelling activist and storyteller and a badass in my book. Hi, Sam. Welcome to our podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, How are you doing? How is life during COVID for you? Um, Actually, it's pretty good. (laughs) I mean, I know that that's an unpopular opinion, probably, but I think I probably live in one of the best places on earth to... uh, to uh, weather a global pandemic. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And what, how are you doing? Uh, what, what are you doing these days? Like, what are your projects? Do you have creative things going? Do you have home projects? What is Yeah. Like? So actually, I just released my latest film called Yukon Calling. It's a short film that's like kind of a, um, a poet, a poetry exploration of the Yukon River. In 2017, me and eight other people paddled the length of the Yukon River um, over the course of 65 days, I think it was. And it's just basically footage with poetry, just really beautiful because Yukon River is a beautiful place and it's relatively untouched by humans. So there's only like certain um, indigenous tribes that live along the river for about half of it. So Uh, So that's one thing that I just recently released. It's on Vimeo. And I'm also currently working on an animated show. My next question to you, which is, I know that you live in the Los Angeles eco-village. And, you know, you have talked about sort of how you ended up there and and so forth. And I just want you to talk briefly about why you chose to live there and sort of, because you mentioned where you live is kind of the perfect place to be right now. So I would love to hear that sort of tie in. Yeah, so back when I was filming for The Longest Straw in 2015, um, I had just gotten back from my hike, and I was like, okay, we need to figure out how to close out this film. So I decided to reach out to a bunch of, like, um, water policymakers and water activists in Los Angeles. So we spoke with Greywater Corps. uh, We spoke with um, LA Bureau of Sanitation. And uh, there was this woman, Laura Allen, who's kind of like the godmother of Greywater in Los Angeles. 
because she just it kind of like makes things policy like she does them and then she like, like helps make them policy like that's basically what she does and so she had um pushed through la legalizing gray water systems uh and she lived at the los angeles eco village so i was like hey can we interview you i think it i think you'd be really beneficial for the end of the film she was like yeah for sure so we came to the eco village and i remember walking in and being like what is this place i saw people like walking around with giant smiles on their face and everybody's like hey hey hey, how you doing and it was just like i i was just absorbed like nobody was like get out of here who are you everybody was like oh yeah we heard you know you're here to film with laura it's great um and it was like they welcomed me even though i was like a complete stranger which was interesting and so after that i kind of just like dive delve dove that's it dove <laughs> a little deeper into like uh researching the eco village and i found out they had this whole food lobby that people that don't live at the eco village could join and so i was like oh that might be my in so i joined the food lobby and became active in their food lobby which is basically like a like they have a bulk room and also a uh, a veggie delivery service kind of like a csa and so that's how I got started with that. And then I decided, well, I'm going to apply to be a member. I'm going to go through the membership process, which is like, it takes a long time to go through the membership process. Um, it's very thorough. <laughs> but yeah. And so I went through that and I, luckily they accepted me and thought I would be a good fit here. And so I've been living here since 2017. And the food lobby is that... Do they have a garden at the LA Eco Village, like an organic garden that they grow? No, the vegetables that we get are from a, a place called JF Organics. And it's a farmer that has little farms all throughout like the outskirts of Los Angeles. In like um, like he has a, a a greenhouse in Joshua Tree. I remember one of the funniest stories was like he was late to make the delivery. I was like, what the heck is going on? And so I called him up and I was like, I was like, Luis, what's going on? Why are you not here yet? He's like, I'm sorry. My greenhouse collapsed under snow. This is the first time we've ever had snow in Joshua Tree and I don't know what to do. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Just chill. We're we're cool. We're cool. (laughs) Like figure out what you need to do. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I remember when it snowed. That was crazy. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And apparently it collapsed in his greenhouse. Um, Yeah. That's cool. So he, he has like a network of growers or farms or yeah yeah that's interesting I didn't even know about that yeah JF Organics he also sells at the farmers markets and basically the deal that he's worked out with us is whatever he doesn't sell at the farmers markets he gives to us and then we distribute it amongst our food lobby members for like a flat rate every week that's great so that eliminates waste right very cool so a lot sometimes the vegetables we get are a little bit questionable but we don't complain because right. it's really not it, like for the amount of produce that we get, it's a good deal. Amazing. That's a great, it's a great system. I think those systems are going to become, I feel like those, some of that um, mentality is what has happened during this pandemic and sort of through, I've watched how communities are like helping each other to grow, to teach each other. There's like free seed banks happening right now and free vegetable giveaways right now. And it's like, it's that community. It's actually the gardening and the permaculture community that's really stepped up and been really, um, I think the importance of our ability to like grow our own food has become 
at least that's the one, I feel like that's one of the only takeaways. I hope that there's more, but I feel like that's one of the only takeaways right now is how important permaculture, knowledge of permaculture and knowledge of how to grow is. Yeah. And also like the knowledge of what you can and can, what you can live without. Right. So I think, I think that's really like, and I honestly think that's why I, me and my neighbors are personally thriving so much during this time. Like a lot of us aren't experiencing that sense of deprivation yeah. as much as my other friends that I see outside of the Eagle Village because we're always kind of like thinking of new ways to use things in different new ways. And right. so it's like, I don't think I'll ever go hungry living here. Mm. Uh, and I will never, you know, I don't know. It's just, I think, I think that's why we're thriving here is because we're, we kind of live, we kind of think this way anyway. Right. You're already thinking about your impact on, on your environment. You're already careful about what your impact on the environment is and you're already living lightly. So when you're forced to sort of live within a smaller confine, it feels like you're, you're highly adaptable as, as opposed to like the average consumer. Yeah. And I, and I do admit that that's a, that is definitely a place of privilege, right? It is not, I also want to acknowledge that too, where it's like mm-hmm. the eco village. Mm-hmm. It's not easy for a lot of people to get membership to the eco village. It takes a year and you have to live nearby because you have to participate in the community while you're in the membership process. Because If nobody knows you, they're not going to, they're not going to, allow you to live in the community. You know what I mean? So we're, we're still trying to figure that out. That's something that we're talking about actively and trying to fix our membership process so that it's more open to people that don't necessarily have the kind of like time to be able to go through the membership process. Like, you know, how do we have members that are kind of like satellite members that maybe don't live at the eco village, but still have access to all of the things that we do here, you know? Well, but the other aspect of what your community is, it's an, it's an intentional community. And I think that intention can actually be exported. That intentionality can be exported and can be taught. And you don't necessarily need to be in the LA Eco Village to be following the tenants of the LA Eco Village. So there's, sure. that, there's that idea of like, you can either come into the LA Eco Village or you can take the LA Eco Village out. It seems that your ethic is definitely the motivation for your storytelling and your art. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got into film and filmmaking and what it is about that art form that really speaks to you. Okay. When I was a teenager, I actually wanted to be an actress and I went to all these acting classes and all of these things. My mother drove me all over creation to all of these different acting things. And then I found out and I came to like an acceptance within myself that I just wasn't that great at acting. So I was like, I better think of a plan B. And so I was like, oh, okay, I can be a filmmaker. I can go behind the camera. And so I started kind of focusing on that. And when I was in high school, I made a couple music videos. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to be the next great music video maker. <laughs> and so I applied to Emerson College in Boston. And luckily they accepted me. Not in their filmmaking program, though. I wasn't good enough for the filmmaking program. But so I went into television and video production as my major. And there I just learned all aspects of media making. It's an amazing college for that. Yeah. So while I was at Emerson, I was like 
doing the music video thing. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a music video maker. And then I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to take a documentary class and just see what that's like. And so I took this documentary class and I made a documentary film about how the Rocky Horror Picture Show phenomenon started. (laughs) This is a really interesting story. I don't know if you know it, but like, yeah. So I made a film about that and my, I won the award in my class for the best short documentary film. And I was like, Oh, maybe I'm actually really good at this. <laughs> so then I was like, all right, I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker. And so that's how that happened. And then from there on out, I would just spend um, hours and hours and hours. Like my favorite thing about the filmmaking process is editing. Hmm. Um, I'm an editor by trade. And that's what I love the most is it's like crafting a nonfiction story in the edit bay. It's like one giant story puzzle. It's amazing. So fun. And so I would spend hours and hours and hours in the edit bays at Emerson, like to the point where the, the supervisor that supervised the edit bays just gave me a key so that I could just stay there all night if I wanted to. <laughs> so that's how that happened. All right. I could go on forever. I'm <laughs> well, I'm curious um, when you sort of came, like, I'm curious about that synthesis between like telling a story about, uh, you know, a cause. I mean, I, cause I know like, there's there's a story about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is like fun and it's interesting. And like, you know, when you make a film about something that is quirky or, you know, that, something that you feel like nobody knows versus like something that you feel like needs to be exposed. So I moved to Los Angeles. So I'm, I'm from the East Coast, right? And my water came from my backyard, basically a well in my backyard. I grew up on well water. And then I moved to Boston where there was a huge, the huge Charles river. So I could see water there. So moving out to Los Angeles and looking around and being like, where, where's all the water? Like, I don't understand how all of these people are living here and what that tiny concrete trickle. I'm like, what is that? That's gross. That looks gross. And so I, I just remember going off on this, like asking all of everybody that I could, like, do you know where LA's water comes from? And they were like, no, I don't. And I even, I even have a, we have a video from the early days of the longest straw where I go out to Los Feliz and I ask people on the street where the water comes from. And like, people have all of these crazy answers. Um, and, and so it kind of just set me off in motion on this like idea of like, where does the water come from? And I think I probably like Googled it or something. <laughs> I Googled it. And then Maybe, um, have you heard of the Kim, Kim Stringfellow um, audio project, There It Is, Take It? No. Kim Stringfellow did this audio project called There It Is, Take It. And it's all about the Owens Valley and where the LA's water comes from. And, you know, she interviews people. That's where I, <laughs> that's where I called a lot of the people that I interviewed in my film is because she interviewed them for her thing. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to contact these people and see what I can find out. And so I contacted them and and, and just like, it's so beautiful how giving the people of the Mono Basin and the Owens Valley are with their information. They're, they're just so open about it. And, and they just, they're so giving of their time <laughs> where it was just like, I was just like, I'm coming up this weekend. Are you free by any chance? They're like, yeah, let's go out and have a meal. I'm like, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just so um, available and open to share this story. And I've seen it numerous times in numerous projects where it's like the same people and they're just telling the story over and over and over again because they just want it to be known. They just want to be seen. 
Mm. And so, um, I don't, I got off on a tangent. Do you feel like they, um, just, just to sort of stay with this tangent, do you, I think it's surprising actually, because I, I would think they would be kind of pissed off at Angelinos in a certain way, but you felt very welcomed by them because we, we took their water essentially. Well, I think they recognize the bigger picture, right? I think they recognize that Angelinos are just ignorant sheep to a certain extent, like for lack of a better term. I hear you. It's like ignorant and they just like blindly follow. They realize that the real root of the problem is the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power and their public relations um, machine that they have. So it's not so much. And also, it's also safe to say that Angelinos and the money that they bring to the Owens Valley is appreciated as well because Angelinos, we travel up there to go vacationing. We go to Mount Whitney. We go to Mammoth. We go to Mono Basin, like all of those places. And so our tourist dollars are very appreciated up there too. So I think it's like they understand that Angelinos aren't intentionally being jerks. Mm. And that if they were given the information, they'd probably make better choices, which is something that they're doing, right? Because like back in what, 1994, when the state water board basically said the Los Angeles Department of Water Power can only take X amount of water from the Mono Basin, the people in Mono Lake Committee came down and helped people install low flow toilets Mm -hmm. so that that would not be such a, a, a schism, you know? Yeah. It would bring awareness and people would know. And they'd be like, oh, well, we can use these low-flow toilets and save Mono Lake. Like, Win-win. And also, like, another thing is I've heard so many times in Mono Basin and Owens Valley that, um, you know, we need, you know, Owens Valley needs the water, but we also recognize that Angelinos need the water too. So there is a sense of, like, greater sharing. Interesting. Like it's not either or. And who are some of the communities up in the Owens Valley and the Mono Basin area that you were sort of impressed by, connected to, and feel maybe, well, let's just start with that. Who are some of the communities? So like in the Mono Basin, there's the Mono Lake Committee, which is a nonprofit organization uh, that kind of helps to keep uh, uh, um, an accountability eye on Mono Lake in terms of making sure that the Department of Water and Power doesn't take too much water and destroy the ecosystem. And then there's the Owens Valley Committee, which is basically the same thing like the Mono Lake Committee, except for the Owens Valley. The only thing is that they have a... So the Mono Basin is kind of a a, a concentrated area, right? Whereas like the Owens Valley, it's like 240,000 acres. So um, they struggle a lot with being able to catch the Department of Water and Power, because the Department of Water and Power, you know, they're trying to get as much water as they can from all of these various sources. So, you know, they're they're digging a ditch a little deeper over here and hoping nobody will notice. And they're punching another spring over here and hoping nobody will notice. And so it's like keeping eyes on all of that to make sure that everything is being done in a good way right. is, is what they're challenged with. And so, then, there's a, so there's like a small community of people who basically have to watchdog this giant utility company that's up there essentially trying to take as much as they possibly can. So do they have limits or? They do. But, you know, one of the famous things that the Department of Water Power makes known to the Owens Valley a lot of the time is that it's cheaper 
to litigate than it is to mitigate. Interesting. So, you know, of course, being a huge company that they are, you know, a whole, a whole floor of the building downtown is dedicated to their lawyers. Um, Owens Valley, it's kind of like a David and Goliath situation. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So the relationship with the Angelinos is interesting because if the Angelinos know more about how they can conserve water and how precious their water is, then that has a direct impact on what's taken from the Owens Valley and the Mono Basin or the Mono Lake. And it feels like the other side of that, and we'll get, we'll get into this at the end, but it feels like the other side of that that is maybe missing is also lobbying the Department of Water and Power to actually follow better guidelines, if that's even possible. That's exactly, like, from what I gather from my discussions with the people in the Owens Valley, the people that I have talked to, like, I can't speak for them, but the people that I have talked to, the impression that I'm getting from them is that they really would like Angelinos to know more so that they feel empowered to stand with the people in the Owens Valley and the Mono Basin to come together on these issues rather than having it of us versus them, having it everybody discuss and try to find the best way to make everyone be able to live and thrive. If the LA community actually begins to do a little pushback on the DWP from a policy standpoint, then they might be held accountable by Angelinos as well as the Owens Valley residents. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you feel like, is that sort of what the goal of the, the movie, or was that part of the goal of the movie? Yeah, the, the, the goal of the film, I think, was to um, inform Angelinos about a place that is often not thought of in terms of a, like we colonized a whole area of California so that we could take their water. And I think that if more Angelinos were to know that, then they would think of those people not necessarily as, so like there, there's a different way of thinking about people if you're like traveling through to go on vacation, right? It's a very different way. Whereas like if you're, if, if I were an Angelino now after watching The Longest Straw and I knew that that place that I go on vacation to all the time is also the place where a third of my water comes from, I feel like I would feel a deeper kinship with those people than, than just like, oh, hey, I'm just here to spend my tourist dollars and then I'm going to get out of your face. It's like, no, it's like we drink the same water. Mm. And I think there's something that's really beautiful about that and that people will have a greater sense of, like I said, kinship and also yeah. stewardship towards that land. Because well, they're, they're basically recognizing that they are in the same community right we are all essentially one biotic community yeah but they don't have representation on any of our boards here right <laughs> which should change for sure the the narrative of how the water got down there starts with this man william mulholland and you know so we're sort of most familiar with the heroic saga of how william mulholland and his he sort of had this quest to quench the thirst of a very young Los Angeles that was growing like crazy. And narrative tends to glorify Mulholland. And I'm just wondering from the standpoint of the people you talk to in Mono Basin, Owens Valley, and then Los Angeles, sort of how does that narrative inform 
or did it inform any aspect of your filmmaking or your storytelling? He didn't really. Just because from a filmmaking standpoint, when you see a lot of the films about the LA water system, it's mostly focusing on the historical aspect. William Mulholland, Frederick Eaton, going up there, getting the water by hook and by crook, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I kind of wanted to take a different angle on it because I was like, okay, people already know all that stuff. Like, let's let's see what's happening in the present day water system. And like the reason that I decided to do it where it was like a hike up the whole aqueduct was like, because my, for my, this is a selfish thing, but I'm a very visual learner and you literally have to take me through step-by-step a lot of the time for me to be able to understand something. Yeah. It's hard for me to, like, it's hard for me to sometimes see the forest. Wait, what is that saying? (laughs) Can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. Like I have to look at all the trees. I have to. That's the thing that I do. All right. So so I was like, all right, I'm going to do this and I'm just going to walk the whole thing and see how, how our water has to travel to get to us. And, and it, it's not a pleasurable environment <laughs> for yeah, the most take, part. Take me through it. So at the Cascade, like I went backwards. So I started at the Cascades and walked north where the water starts north and comes south. But I was like, I'm going to start in Los Angeles and do, the, do it that way. Where are the Cascades? The Cascades are in Silmar. Right, which is just outside of town, just off the 5 freeway. Yeah, a lot of, where the 5 and the 14 split, it's that giant, like, man-made waterfall. Yep. Sometimes it's lit up. But, um, I mean, that part wasn't so bad because you're, like, you go up through the Angeles National Forest through a place called, like, Green Valley, which is not so bad. Um, and, you know, it's still relatively green. There's no water sources. But then, then you get to the Antelope Valley, and that's where shit starts to get real, Antelope Valley, because like you come over this hill and it's just like this wide open space of just like the southwest Mojave Desert. <laughs> you're just like, oh, what am I getting into? Mm-hmm. And you're walking next to this concrete thing full of water. You can hear it in there yeah. while you're walking next to it, and yet you cannot get to it. Mm-hmm. There's no way but it's like a river and there's no way to get to it. And so you're walking through these, like, you know, and when we were walking, it was 2015. And I thought it was a great idea to do this over the summer. And so we're walking in like hundred degree heat in, in the middle of the worst drought in California history. So it was not a pleasurable experience. And so just to like feel that that is what our water has to travel through to get to us was just like really humbling Mm. at the time I couldn't see it because I was too much in my own shit. But now I, I, I realize how grateful I am for that experience because it just makes me appreciate water that much more. What kept you going as you, I'm sure you hit moments where you just wanted to quit, but I was just curious, like what kept you going in that kind of harsh environment? So the, there was another woman on this project, Angela, and she every weekend would come and bring me food and she wouldn't let me quit. <laughs> I tried many times and she would literally kick me out of her car. (laughs) All right. Me in the desert and be like, I'm sorry, I'm leaving you. Goodbye. Everyone needs a good collaborator. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, one of my favorite stories is like, I, 
I remember I was at the crossover in the Antelope Valley where the LA Aqueduct and the um, California Aqueduct crossed. It's the only time the two aqueducts crossed. And I was sitting there and I was having like a temper tantrum. I was like, I just want to go the fuck home. I was like, I'm so over this. I am done. I am done. And um, I was just like going off to Angela about it. And I was like, no, you're taking me home now. I don't want to. She was like, I'm not taking you home. And so I called my mother. <laughs> I was like, mom, Angela won't take me home. <laughs> She's like, good. I'm like, mom, who side are you on? She's like, like, I want you to finish this project. How many miles did you walk? Um, about like over 400. Yeah. Like give or take, you know, um, with a backpack, with all your equipment. Yeah. And it was definitely overweight. Um, my pack weighed 60 pounds and you're not, you're only supposed to carry a 30 year body weight. So my knees are forever not okay because (laughs) unfortunately, but that's the price I paid. Um, but the amount of like love and outpouring that I felt from people there, like so many times people stopped and, and asked if they could give me a ride somewhere. Yeah. And even a person at the Haley Reservoir, which is a reservoir keeper, like gave us a whole chicken. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, tell me that story. There was a guy who he came across you to you and was a Catholic. Yeah. And he was like, completely showed you around and gave you a tour. Was that the guy? Yeah. I mean, how did that happen? Literally the way, like, so we get to the Hayway Reservoir and there's a fence that says no trespassing, right? Mind you, all of these places are supposed to be open for public recreation because that's part of their deal in the long-term water agreement. But we come against this fence. Part of LADWP's agreement with those areas. Owens Valley Committee, all of the people, the memorandum of understanding, where it's like the Owens Valley Committee, the ranchers have a part in it. You know, everybody had this memorandum of understanding that that, um, all the places along the aqueduct were going to be open for public recreational use, particularly by the people of the valley. Of course, like not necessarily the canals, but... um, you know, anything that, but what happened was that they had the Haley Reservoir open to the public and I think someone drowned in there. And so they closed it, mm-hmm. but it's the only reservoir on the whole system. That's not open to the public for some reason, all of the other reservoirs, Crowley, Pleasant Valley, all those other reservoirs are totally open to the public. People can go fishing, boating, swimming, all of that stuff. But for some reason, the Haley Reservoir was closed. So we get to the fence and there's no trespassing sign. And I was like, I am not walking back five miles back to the other part of the aqueduct. I'm not doing that. We're going over this fence. And luckily my partner that was with me, Sadie, she was totally game. She was like, fine, I'm cool. Let's trespass. So <laughs> we did. And we go over the fence and five seconds later, the truck pulls up. <laughs> He's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like, oh, we're hiking the aqueduct. He was like, well, did you not, did you just like go over that fence that has a no trespassing sign? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, our GPS says this is BLM land. So we which thought. Land management, which means yeah. it's public. So. Yeah. So we were like, so we thought we could go. He was like, well, you're not really supposed to be here. And he's like, but whatever, just, just chill out. And so then we're like sitting under the tree and we're just like taking a nap. And he comes back and he's like, do you guys like chicken? We're like, yeah, we like chicken. 
He's like, oh, well, here's a whole chicken that I picked up at the grocery store. And we're like, thank you? <laughs> and then he's like, I, I get off my shift at 4 p.m. What are y'all doing? And I'm like, uh, we're just going to be sitting here. I don't know. Well, let me take you for a drive around the reservoir. We're like, okay. That's great. So he did. So stories want to be told a lot of times, right? Yeah. Like they're out there to be discovered like flowers or whatever. That's what I think is so interesting is like, when you're walking, you have this immediate connection with the people that are on the land and the land. You know, you're not in a car, you're not, you're literally there. And you, so these things happen spontaneously. And that is, I mean, when I think about the way you made that film, it really makes a lot of sense because what you were after was the sort of felt experience of the aqueduct. That's a great story. And speaking of stories, so one of the, the interesting I think one of the things that the founder of BioCitizen, Kurt Heidinger, talks about um, and has kind of taught me is this concept of places being stories. And one of our, our teaching tenants is we teach the kids to read the land. And um, we sort of talk about places as being stories we live in. And we teach the students this so that they can read the land and see what the land is really telling us about what it needs, how it's been treated. Um, and I'm talking about, I include water and land, and I also include the creatures, and in many cases, the communities that live off the land. So when you got up there to Mono Lake and the Owens Valley, did those places kind of reveal, well, we just talked about this person on this reservoir, but did those places reveal stories to you that change the course of the film or that in kind of I mean did you have something written out or did those did those places kind of tell you what needed to be revealed so I didn't I didn't have anything written out before I went on this trip like I didn't even I hadn't even laid eyes on the places where I'd be going most of the time so I was just literally following the aqueduct and figuring it out from there and like you could definitely see the drawdown of the water table, like to the point where it would be like yellow, 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 mm-hmm. where like all the shrub and brush and stuff was, was dying. Vegetation then, was leading up to the water. Yeah. But then you would get down to wherever the man-made canal was that was the aqueduct and it would just be like trees. And it's like, you, you would look at it and be like, that's what wants to grow here but we're inhibiting it because we're taking it. We're taking it away its life source and shuttling it 300 miles downstream. The same happened to the people of Owens Valley, right? Okay, so so the story of the people is a little bit different because there was an indigenous tribe that lived all along the valley, the Paiute. And and they were kind of like... They were, there was the northern Paiute and the southern Paiute um, this would be the Southern Paiute. And so they didn't have to go, like the Northern Paiute were more nomadic from what I gather, but the Southern Paiute were more, they stayed in place because the Owens Valley had so much water in it that they didn't have to really go anywhere else. And so uh, when the settlers started coming in and putting up fences, that, that really threw a wrench in the Paiute people's way of living because they didn't recognize land ownership. Right. And so a lot of them got killed by ranchers because they would continually cross these fences, not thinking it was a big deal, but to the ranchers, it was a big deal. 
And so it started the Owens Valley Indian War, where the ranchers were fighting with the Owens Valley uh, Paiute. And then the federal government came in and basically forced marched all of the Paiute. They rounded them all up, forced marched them down to Fort Tejone, and gave the land to the ranchers. And then during this time was when Frederick Eaton and William Mulholland came up and started acquiring all the land and water rights of the Owens Valley from the ranchers. Interesting. And so then the Owens Valley Paiute returned to the Owens Valley, but now they're on these reservations in Big Pine, Lone Pine, and Bishop, are federally recognized tribes. Independence is its own thing. It's not federally recognized, I don't think. So there's still, there's still outstanding issues with the Owens Valley Paiute and the LADWP because the LADWP has been refusing to give the Owens Valley Paiute their fair share of the water. And so the Owens Valley Paiute are still fighting that to this day. Just to return to what you were saying, because I think it's a really interesting visual of like this, because you, you talked about the water table being drawn down and... I guess I was referencing, like, I remember in your, in, in your film, you know, there are people in Owens Valley who on an, sometimes when it was really bad, their taps were dry. Isn't that right? Um, that, no, see, I know that's, that's a little confusing. At the beginning of the film, I referenced people in Porterville. Okay. Which Porterville is on the other side of the Sierra. Oh, interesting. Okay. Owens Valley. But it's just kind of like, not that their taps would be dry, but but there's definitely dust storms that happen in the Owens Valley that are impacting people's health. I mean, the heat is, is horrific. I mean, you've, you felt it yeah. where you go near a stream and it's like 10 degrees cooler because the water just has a way of cooling things down. So if you take all of the water away from a place, it's going to turn into a heat sink. Yeah. They've changed the whole, though basically they've changed the, the character of the valley immensely i remember being up in the sierras uh, up by langley i was up there doing some recon for one of our claws trips with kurt and we came over and over a, a ridge and all the bristol comb bristol comb pines were like really gnarly on the on the slope facing the valley and you could feel this dry heat coming up so it's just really changed i mean the impact of removing that water is it you can it's visceral you can feel it and also it's it's interesting too because because ladwp has colonized the owens valley the the towns in the owens valley cannot grow past what they are right now there's no way for them to evolve and change really how are they limited by the dwp well the, the los angeles department of water and power owns all the land and so they don't want people developing on their land because then that would mean that they would have to use water to do that and so basically these towns, Big Pine, Bishop, Lone Pine, Independence, are all kind of stuck in this time capsule. Right. And they can't grow outside. You know, they lease the land to ranchers, but the ranchers have all these restrictions on what they can do on that land. Yeah. They can't build things without special permission from the department. They have to get special permission if they want to grow anything. Um, you know, so. Do you think there's any benefit to that? Because it sounds like yeah, that's limited development. Yeah, there absolutely is benefit. Um, you know, because there's a, there's a lot of times where people say that if the valley were to grow the way that they wanted to grow, it would be like Bakersfield. 
you know, or on the other side, you know, the Central Valley, it would would just basically be another Central Valley. So there is a benefit to that. But also, it's kind of weird to have your landlord be 300 miles away. It is indeed weird. (laughs) (laughs) And really not have any, it's like a, it's like having a slumlord, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, it, it, you know, it, that's so funny because now that you say that, it's like that's what's happening in Los Angeles even here, right? It's like a lot of our landlords live who knows where. Or it's not even one person. It's like a corporation. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. Which means that they have no real care or feeling for the place that they own. And they don't really view it. On roof level, yeah. I mean, I mean, anybody that goes up to the Owens Valley or the Mono Basin, I dare them to not fall in love with it. So I'm sure that there's people in the department that have love for those places, but because it is a bureaucratic agency of a large city, there's no room for love. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like they have one purpose and it's to get water to the people of Los Angeles. I've been told that so many times. Like that's, that's like their PR cover up is anytime you ask them a hard question, they look at you and be like, we have one purpose and it's to get water to the city of Los Angeles. And I'm like, that is not an answer. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty one note, right? It's yeah. I mean, it means, yes, you're doing your due diligence. You're getting water to the people, but like at what, at what cost? Yeah, exactly. So at BioCitizen, we a lot of times follow, so Aldo Leopold came up with the land ethic, and there's a quote that, that I really love that I tend to come back to again and again when we're talking about our relationships to the land or to the water or to the biotic community in general. And he says, we abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. And that's just interesting because you said the people that work within the department have, you have seen them fall in love with those places. Um, And it feels like your film is a little bit of like a love story with like that. Because when you get up there, it is such, um, in in your film, when you get up to these beautiful spots um, along the river where it's still wild, you know, there's like this sense of relief, you know what I mean? And it's this place where you can kind of fall in love with that. And I think one of the things that I, when I was done viewing it, I just felt this strong, strong desire to get to know those places so that I could figure out how to support those people. So in that sense, I think once we see that those things like there's the, that's the difference between like the LADWP and like you and me maybe, and what we want to inspire in our kids in terms of our mission is like, we have to fall in love with these places and we have to care for them because if we don't, then you have the, the, the alternate universe is this giant utility company that just basically has a one policy and they have their whole policy in one sentence, which is that it's something that, it's a, it's a product that needs to get to Los Angeles. When you got up there and you started to like, when you were that scene where you're in the lake and you're sort of, you're at the source basically, 
do you remember feeling like anything in particular about what you wanted to communicate to Angelinos and like what you wanted to bring back to them and then how that might also translate into action? One of the things that I really remember viscerally about that time of going into the lake and swimming is my skin has seen all the places that this water has traveled, you know, and, and my skin has seen all the places I've picked up dirt. I've picked up bugs, you know, I've picked up sweat and the sweat of other people from them touching me. I have food inside of me that was given by the people that are near the water sources. I don't know. And, and just like going into that lake, I was just basically saying to Mona Lake, I give all of it back to you in recognition and appreciation. And now I want to take this message back to Los Angeles with me so that people too can feel this kind of connection. And, and basically what I wanted, what I want the film to do is to foster a kinship between the Los, between the people of Los Angeles and the people of the Owens Valley, people, places, animals, all the things of Los Angeles, the Owens Valley, the Middle Basin. I just want to foster this kinship in that we share this water. So then how does that, how do you want that to translate into action in Los Angeles? Yeah. So um, supporting through monetary donations of the Owens Valley committee, the Mono Lake committee, installing gray water systems is huge. Uh, like, I think that is, like, the, the, the number of times that you can reuse water, the better. Right. So what's a, what's a gray water system? So a gray water system is um, where you send, so you get gently used bathtub, shower, and bathroom sink water, and you put it back out onto the landscape to feed plants, usually fruit trees. Okay. So that's one, that's one thing you can do. Yeah. Um, are there any other, like, smaller nonprofits or organizations that you feel like are really educating or pushing public policy around water conservation? Gray water action, the river project, one water, Mayor Garcetti's 2050 plan by 2050 of 75% local water. Okay. Which I still can't get a straight answer from the department of water and power, whether or not they're considering Owens Valley water local or not. Oh, that's an interesting question. Because it's not, <laughs> but it's theirs. It is because because we own the land, right? So, yeah. So Garcetti wants by 2050, 75 percent of our water to come in. Yeah, let me look it up here. Hang on. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like our country saying we want to have all of our fossil fuels coming from our our oil reserves. So LA's Green New Deal Sustainability Plan. Recycle 100% of wastewater by 2035. Source 70% of all water locally by 2035. Anything you do in your daily life that is like a water hack that you want to share? I shower with a five-gallon tub in my shower, and then I use that water to flush my toilet. Cool. (laughs) And then I also have like a dish basin where I wash my dishes. And then after I'm done washing my dishes, I pour that in a bucket and I go outside and I give it to the apple tree. 
So you've got your own like manual gray water system. Yeah, because there's no there's nothing to feed on this side of the eco village, like in terms of plants. So it wouldn't make sense to put a gray water system in. So I just have to schlep it myself. So when you take a bath or take a shower, well, you take a shower or draw water from your tap, are you pretty much continuously aware that that water is probably originating from the place you hike to? Yeah. But also I just think about it in terms of like, actually more, more so I think about it in terms of like the water that exists on the earth is the water that's always existed. There's no like new, there's no new, like you can't create water, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm more like to think about it like, whoa, this is like, you know, Jesus saw this water or like, <laughs> or like, you know, like all these famous people, like who else has touched this water? Well, on that note, I'm going to thank you for your time because it's just awesome to your energy and your playfulness, but also just the fact that I know from seeing the film, which I hope everybody goes out and sees it's, it's on Amazon right now. Yeah. It's on Amazon prime and Tubi TV. Nice. Samantha Bode, I am so thankful for your time and your activism and all that you do. What's your, what's your tagline for your film? Without water, there is no life. Join us as we make a direct connection to our water. Perfect. Thank you.